When Dorothy learns Stan has screwed up their taxes, leading to an audit, she's furious. When she learns he spent $2,500 on a ring for her, she's less so. But that anger comes roaring back when the IRS demands a fine be paid or the exes will face jail time. Will Dorothy be able to come up with the money? Will Blanche and Rose become fluent in Spanish? Will Sophia have more than three lines? All of that and more in today's episode, The Audit. Thank you for the friendship. We've come so far and traveled wide. You're my best friends. I could never lie. I love when we party, dance and sing, and laugh just doing our thing. No matter the misters that come At the stove, Sophia is stirring and despicing away in a purple dress and a pink apron when Dorothy comes home, entering through the mystery back door. Wearing a baggy-sleeved mix of earth tones jacket and a white shirt with a yellow trim jacket that has a matching pattern in the middle of it, Dorothy is nearly dragged across the room by the power of the spaghetti sauce scent as though it were equipped with a tractor beam. Suck me right in. Offered a sample, Dorothy doesn't hesitate to try, the savory flavors causing her body to shiver. Sophia appreciates that she enjoyed it, but it's more than just terrific. Much like her marriage-saving recipe from last episode, this sauce is why she and Sal even got hitched. Before hearing the dramatic story about Sal and Sophia falling in love over spaghetti, Blanche has arrived and she has bad news. Yeah, it's bad news. It has been over a week, eight days actually, since she last had a date. Sophia can top that. It's a good thing she has Stan's poofy toilet seat as she's been keeping things to herself as well. A not at all uncommon issue for someone of her age. As if climate change and World War III weren't enough to worry about for when we get older, pooping will be difficult too. In a study and article on the National Archive of Medicine, 65% of adults over 65 will experience straining when doing the do. As far as constipation goes, 26% of women and 16% of men over 65 experience it, increasing to 34% and 26% of women and men, respectively, once you're over the age of 84. And if someone is living in a long-term care facility, numbers have been as high as 80%. So eat that fiber, kids. But enough of all that crap. Back to Blanche's. In her Hamptons chic yellow shirt with a white and black polka-dotted open shirt, she just can't understand what has changed to have her dating less frequently. This is all surely a sign that Blanche's dating life is coming to an end, information she can only share by doing her most dramatic 1950s-inspired wall lean. Surely she will never date again. As usual, Dorothy is there to comfort Blanche, give her the compliments she's fishing for, and to be the recipient of her cruelty once she realizes she's right. Of course Blanche will date again. It's Dorothy that probably won't. Coming in with news of her own, it's Rose, who has also entered via the garage-slash-garden-slash-mink farm door. Excitedly, she asks the girls to guess what she has planned for three hours every Thursday evening. Dorothy has a guess. Rose is going to cut up her black pantyhose and turn them into sock puppets so she can put on an Amos and Andy show. Oh, boy. Minstrel actors started a radio show of Amos and Andy in the 1920s, which was about two black men. They were portrayed, of course, as poor and ignorant because America. Sadly, it was a hit and eventually became a television show, but it didn't last long due to the controversy surrounding it. Here's an awful fact. When the TV show aired, the two white actors remained the voice of the characters, who were then played by black men who had to lip-sync all the words. Think of it as a drunk history, but with a huge oh-boy filter. The NAACP, who had a convention that aired at the same time as the show in 1951, was one of the groups most opposed to the show. Those who supported black lives back then called for the show to be pulled. 
The protests against the negative portrayal of black people led to a drop in sponsors, which led to the show's eventual cancellation. Thank goodness. Just so you know how bad it was, here's a clip. Remember, these are two white guys. Well, I like American cars, though. Well, now, don't get in there. Foreign cars is more economical to run. Yes, why is that? Because, Andy, over there, they all runs on uh, kilometers. Huh? Well, does them kilometers wear out as quick as tires? <laughs> oh, no, Andy. Kilometers is distance. Uh, over there, we measure distance in miles. Kilometers are shorter than miles. So there you is. When you drive in France, you ain't got so far to go. You see what I mean? Luckily, that's not what Rose will be doing. But sadly, she is going to add it to her list of plans. Her plans on Thursdays actually surround work. She was offered a promotion, but is only qualified if she becomes bilingual. Blanche, experiencing another Rose moment of dumbness, confuses bilingual with bisexual. This is kind of a perfect example of why the LGBTQIA community is so fond of the girls. When Blanche thinks Rose will have to date women to get her promotion, she doesn't freak out. She's not appalled. It's not a sin. She doesn't react in any negative way, except to say no job is worth doing that. Which sounds like she maybe explored that in a past life, and it just wasn't for her. It feels like a cheeky nod of, we see you, we love you, we hope we make you laugh. After being corrected by Dorothy that bilingual means one who speaks two languages, Blanche laughs off her confusion and is somehow surprised that she made it all about sex. After that long way around, we finally learn what Rose will be doing on Thursdays. She has signed up for a Spanish class at her local community college. She's going to night school. Speaking of turning everything into sex, Blanche is quick to jump on the night school train. Not that she wants to learn Spanish, rather she wants to meet an educated man, because the only thing better than an educated man is a dumb one who's good with his hands. It's decided. Blanche is signing up for the Spanish class, too. When Sophia announces it's dinner time, it's a moment for Rose to reclaim her crown of stupidity. When she's told they'll be having spaghetti, she follows it up with an almost surprised, oh, Italian food? Annoyed, Sophia corrects her. No, it's Chinese food in a marinara costume. Now, Sophia isn't totally wrong. There are some historians that believe the first pasta was rice pasta, which was brought from China to Italy by Marco Polo. Then there are others that feel Arab people introduced Sicily to pasta. But don't tell Sophia or any other Italian, because there are those who say there is proof spaghetti came from Italy. So I guess Rose can call it whatever she wants. Now that Rose has been shamed by her Italian roommate, she's back to her Spanish plan. To learn the language faster, she's planning on becoming totally immersed. We're talking food, clothes. For help with reading it, she'll be studying her Julio Iglesias album covers. But she doesn't have to learn Spanish just from Spanish-born singer and Papa to Enrique, Julio. Selling over 100 million albums, his work has been translated into 14 different languages. Why, here he is singing in French. After leaving to answer the door, Blanche has returned and is bummed that it was just Stan. Here to ruin their delicious-looking meal, Dorothy is kind enough to offer him a plate, to which he makes a surprising remark. Asking if Dorothy cooked it, he's happy to accept a plate when he learns she didn't. It's surprising Sophia would let him say something about Dorothy's cooking and not be met with a melon baller. It's also surprising that it seems maybe Dorothy isn't a great cook, something I can't imagine Sophia would let slip by without forcing her to learn a couple of her recipes. When Sophia attempts to get to the point of Stan's surprise arrival, Dorothy begs her to be nice. He is still a guest. Once she's away from her mother, her true feelings come out as she asks him what the hell he wants. Well, it's not so much what he wants from her, it's that they have a problem, as a married couple. Catching a few whoopsies in his tax return, the IRS went digging, all the way back to a filing made when the two were married. So as a couple they are being audited. Being audited is basically like having the teacher bring the answer key over to your test to make sure it matches up. Our system is so dumb, the IRS knows what you should be paying but forces you to pay someone to tell you what you should pay. And if you don't pay what they say you should pay, then you'll pay. The IRS will go through all of your financial records to make sure their numbers match yours. 
If found inaccurate, you can be fined or even sent to prison. So because Stanley didn't file something correctly, both he and Dorothy will have to meet with an auditor to go over earnings and spendings from like a decade ago. Fun! Blanche, who has been down this road and will drive it again in another season, tries to calm Dorothy down. Sometimes the IRS doesn't audit someone because of a problem, it's just at random. Before Dorothy can relax, Stan assures her. That is not the case here. They're auditing because he lied on the filing and they might get fined or go to jail. A plan is made that Stan will come by the following night with all of the paperwork so they can go over it. Feeling better having gotten that off of his chest, Stan asks for the Parmesan. Furious at his mistakes, which continue to haunt her life, Dorothy will not. That's okay, he can have the spaghetti without it. With a stare of death from Dorothy, Stan finally gets the drift and sees himself out. His leaving doesn't help how angry Dorothy is. For nearly 40 years, she was in charge of their money and she was responsible with it. Yet here she is, dealing with another brilliant move by Stan because he had his hand in the proverbial cookie jar. Well, it's too bad he didn't get caught stealing in the Viking times. He would have had his hand cut off and tongue if he was caught lying, according to Rose. Trespassing, off go the feet. These ramblings only have Sophia wishing there had been Vikings around to cut off Stan's Floridian-shaped cake when he impregnated Dorothy. It's now Thursday night. Dorothy has plans to go over her receipts, of which she is neatly sorting on the coffee table. Rose has come out in a teal-topped dress with floral skirt wrapped in a traditionally Latin colorful scarf. She's already on her way to being bilingual, responding to Dorothy with a C. Sort of giving her friend a hard time, Dorothy, in a gray sweater with a brown and gray trim around her neck, jokes that it feels like she's in the Spanish-speaking South American country of Ecuador. Sadly, we lose out on a great fart joke because it turns into an oh boy. As Sophia, in gray slacks, a light shirt, and red cardigan, who has come in from the lanai, walks past and hears Dorothy explain that with her eyes closed it was like she was in Ecuador, Sophia takes the blame. Let's not imply another country's air smells like a constipated lady's farts. That being said, I love how often Sophia farts and happily takes the blame. Coming out from her room in a light blue blouse and white skirt, Blanche is dressed for a cocktail party but ready to go to school. Rose is a bit concerned about the mucho bazumas, or as she'll learn in class, senos, that are sure to draw the attention of classmates. Arriving as planned, Stan has brought his paperwork in a trash bag. When he makes it clear to Dorothy the bag of trash is their future, well, it's just all too accurate. When the captain and Tennille of over-sexual flirtation interact, Stan slips up, complimenting Blanche on her blouse and asking if those are new. Laughing it off, she asks the naughty boy when the last time was he was given a good spanking. Taking a moment to do the math, Stanley comes up with, uh, Vegas, which is more of a where than a when, but okay. Getting ready to leave, Rose slips up and starts speaking English, which, you know, makes sense, seeing as she's just now starting the process of learning Spanish. But all of this multiple language business has her almost as confused as when she tries to use a Ziploc bag, or at least according to Sophia, it does. When Stan attempts to compliment Sophia's looks, she repays him with a compliment on his toupee, then tops it off with, see, now we're both liars. Finally alone, the exes can get to work. As Dorothy starts to look over the tax return in question, she quickly finds a huge loss. Turns out Stan invested in tie bibs, but he lost out. He's still shocked the tie bibs weren't a moneymaker. Who doesn't want to wear a bib over their tie so their shirt stays clean when they go out to lunch? Dorothy might have an idea as to why it didn't make money. Napkins already exist. Dorothy's aggressive response triggers a monologue from Stan, one in which he goes on about wanting to make something of himself, which would then make it good for the family. Because back then, they were on a one-way trip to Palookaville. 
It's possible Stan is referencing the word palooka, meaning a stupid, clumsy, or uncouth person. Or perhaps it was a reference to the 1934 film Palooka, about a young man whose father was a boxer, but the kid grows up in the country and then has his boxing talents discovered by one Jimmy Durante. Now remember, toy with him like you would a weakling. Dynamite Wilson, Ken Levine, you're on. That's us. Oh, gosh, Nobby. I feel kind of queer in my knees. Your customary stage fright. Every prima donna gets it. Forget it. Forget it and get going. I'm guessing, given the fact that it didn't come out until 1995, he wasn't referencing the Vincent Gallo film of the same name, in which the main characters decide to rob a jewelry store. Do you know that Vincent Gallo movie? No. I know the, I know the name Palookaville. I've never seen it. I don't know anything about it. Oh, that's shocking. Uh, but I do know the, the 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 term palooka. I learned it in Pulp Fiction. Oh. Which you'll be hearing a clip from right now. Give me a pack of red apples. Filters. None. You looking at something, friend? You ain't my friend, palooka. What's that? I think you heard me just fine, punchy. <laughs> when did I say it? Uh, it's when uh, Vincent Vega and Butch Bruce Willis meet for the first time in the movie. Uh-huh. So, thank you. Cool. Great clip. <laughs> you heard it. And you know what? Let's roll it again. <laughs> you looking at something, friend? You ain't my friend, Palooka. <laughs> more. One more time. You got it. <laughs> you ain't my friend, Palooka. What's really going on here, and Dorothy can tell, is that Stan recently rented the famous Marlon Brando boxing film On the Waterfront and was feeling inspired. You don't understand. I could have had class. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody instead of a bum, which is what I am. Let's face it. Looking back at the tax record, there was an unknown charge of $2,500. Pulling a receipt from the garbage bag, Stan explains, it was the ring he had purchased as Dorothy's 38th anniversary gift. She's right to be shocked. That would be about $7,000 today. Having only received appliances and a mink from Stan, Dorothy is moved by his generosity. Her gratitude doesn't last long. As she continues reading the deductions, she's curious why there are some payments for a Corvette and a garage. Starting a sentence in the scariest way possible, Stan says, don't be mad. But he purchased a Corvette without telling her. It's not just that Stan chose to buy a flashy midlife crisis, I'm definitely going to cheat on my wife's $70,000 car. It was that he bought a car and rented a garage to store it in without talking to his wife. Stan's excuse of needing to get the car due to his midlife crisis isn't going to work. Dorothy was going through the same thing, so she did her hair and joined a jazzercise group, all of which cost much, much, much less than a car. As usual, Stan starts to intertwine his pathetic side with his scuzzball side. When he sat in the car, he felt seen for the first time. He was getting the attention he so desperately deserved. Also, it was a magnet for getting chicks. Coco, when he gave this speech, I could only think of our mutual friend and his use of cars to get women. When you laid that all out for me about that person, it was, it was like, it was surprising, it was like, it was surprising, but it wasn't shocking. You could, it was you shocking, could see but it, it wasn't surprising. You yeah. were like, oh, it was there all along, and now I see it. Yeah, I see what you are, you <laughs> snake, you chameleon, you cloaker, you shapeshifter, you clown. You saw are a dirtbag. Uh, when I first met him, he had a... Um, He had a Prius, and it was all about, oh, I get so many miles per gallon. I use so much. Like, it's almost always on the electrical side. It's so great. I'm saving the world, you know. And then the car either, like, I don't know if he was leasing it or if he just was going through his old midlife crisis because he was turning 40. He then turned in his Prius and got, I believe, a Mustang. Is that what it was? That's correct. Yeah, a yeah. red Mustang, and it was all about it goes so fast and it, it gets everyone's attention. So both cars, he was like kind of trying to play the Portland thing. I think when he first got here, he's like, oh, I'll be a real Portlander and I'll have an electric car and tried to pick up those kind of women. And then he was like, no, I'm going to get this kind of car. 
<laughs> and get for the this same, kind of woman. Exactly. Yeah. And it was for the same purpose. And it was like, oh, you didn't care that it was electric. It didn't matter that you were doing anything good. Ah. <laughs> Human queef. <laughs> Let's hear that Vincent Vega clip again. Disgusted and pissed, Dorothy screams for Stanley to get out of the house when he reminds her that they are both expected at the IRS for the auditing process, and if they don't go, they could go to prison. Dorothy is happy to hear it. She even, oh boy, hopes that Stanley does go to prison and that... She hopes for Stan to become the girlfriend of Bubba, the convict. It wasn't a good joke. No. But I feel like that joke happened a lot back then. It, there it were a lot the, of Bubba jokes. I, I mean, I, I was watching a movie, I mean, not specifically Bubba, but I was watching a movie yesterday where they made that joke. Of finding a girlfriend? Of like, you're going to go to jail and you're going to get blah, 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 blah yeah. every day. Well, I feel like every time I've seen... Law and Order, SVU, with especially that one guy. What's his Stabler. name? Stabler. Yeah. Chris He's Maloney. always just like, I hope you drop the soap. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, hey, guy. There was on. one time where he was just, ra- he was he was screaming that in someone, that you're going to get in prison. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> he did it a lot. <sighs> it's not funny. No. Mm-hmm. He's got a weird thing about it. Done, done with that show. <laughs> Knowing she has every right to be upset, Stan tries to validate Dorothy's feelings while also pointing out that anything she does to cause pain to him will only end up hurting her. This moment brought to you once again by wear a condom so you aren't attached to a schlub like this for the rest of your entire life. Well, it turns out the oh boy of prison rape was just the start. Now Sophia is in the room coming out to inspect the source of screaming coming from the living room. The oh boy of prison rape was just the start. Now Sophia is in the room, coming out to inspect the source of screaming coming from the living room. When Dorothy explains about the car and why she's so upset, Sophia just doesn't get it. Why, Sal used to do things all the time without telling her, which on its own is not cool, but it's especially not cool when the thing he did was impregnate her. Oh boy. Well, it's time for the audit. Entering a waiting room that must have been inspired by the local DMV, Dorothy, in cream pants and shirt with a coral duster with large feathers patterned all over it, is followed by Stan, who has come dressed up for the occasion, sporting a fancy toupee and Saturday Night Fever-inspired cream suit. Working the front desk is uncredited Cynthia Lee Clark. This is the first of Cynthia's five appearances with the girls, and she was almost always uncredited. She did a lot of extra work, like as a court reporter and a houseless person. By the time she started working with the girls, she had already had over 40 roles to her name. Some of the more notable programs she's appeared in have been Days of Our Lives, General Hospital, The Twilight Zone, Cagney and Lacey, Santa Barbara, Highway to Heaven, Moonlighting, and Passions. Do you remember Passions? I, wa- I watched Passions. No, for you a didn't. While it was on, yeah. No, it was crazy. That was That's a why. crazy show. That was the one in it's like California or something, and it was like it was like there were almost weird, satirical. It was, and there were a lot of different. There was an old woman, I believe. One of the actors was a little person, and there was some sort of was there magic? Something. It was crazy. It was nuts. Yeah, yeah. I remember that. Jaws and I would watch that wow. every once in a while. We'd tune in for. I think there was like a break between classes or something so we'd catch a few minutes of it and it was just like what is this show but it was kind of like all of the madness that's already in soap operas and they were like let's just acknowledge it they turned it up like 10 percent. yeah that's all <laughs> yeah it's basically just a regular soap opera <laughs> with an old witch ah! i think oh gotta get a passions clip now <laughs> I said, isn't that right, Timmy? Timmy! That's right, Telepha. We're gonna win. We're gonna win. Poor Grace. Poor Grace. 
Talking down his angry ex-wife, Stan declares he will be handling the situation, as he should, seeing as he was the one who got them into it. But it's not just because it's all his fault. It's because he's a professional salesman. He knows how to talk himself into or out of anything. Stan's psychology surrounding the day has even affected his clothing choice. His John Travolta cosplay is being used to tell the auditor he's a good guy because good guys always wear white. I'm not sure how long that suit will stay white as Dorothy could puke just looking at him. Finally, it's their turn. They've been summoned by Mr. Murray to go to his office. Playing the auditor is Richard Penn. He's been a character actor for years, and you may know him from Lobster Man from Mars, Fresh Prince, Melrose Place, Murphy Brown, Hanging with Mr. Cooper, ER, Coach, The Closer, Desperate Housewives, Curb Your Enthusiasm, Friends, Six Feet Under, Dr. Doolittle, of course, La La. But most importantly, let us not forget Volcano. I'm In a city where anything can happen, on April 25th, it will. Please stay calm. Coco, there was a time when studios were going head-to-head, competing with nearly identical films. This was that time. We had Dante's Peak. We had Volcano. And later we had Armageddon and Deep Impact, for example. So what kind of girl were you? Because everyone takes a side. Are you Volcano or Dante's Peak? Oh, I'm a Volcano girl. Yeah. Totally. Dante's Peak sucks. It turns day into night. Air into fire. Nothing in the world can compare to its power. The most awesome sight you will ever see may be your last. It's not good. They're a bad on-screen couple, Pierce Brosnan and Linda Hamilton. Uh, the weirdest couple. It doesn't make any sense. Volcano, though. But Dante's Peak, you do get the ante in the in the lake for no reason. That's true. And the and yeah, there's like a uh, sort of like a body jacuzzi oh, uh, yeah. boiling pot happen, <laughs> happening in a natural spring. That's pretty cool, too. But yeah, otherwise, it's very unremarkable. Mostly that movie is like uh, ash coming at people. It's very gray. Yeah. Well, it's filmed in Washington, so it's very it looks like Washington. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. How interesting. Fact. Wow. That Wow. Uh, Volcano's stupid. Yeah. And I love it. I, I think that Anne Haitian and Tommy Lee Jones are an awful com- like awful pair. Yeah, but it works perfectly. Like yeah, yeah, Linda Hamilton and Pierce Brosnan. It's just like, do you guys even? Did you even hang out before you started filming? I feel like there's no way they liked each other. But with Tommy Lee Jones, you feel like you can sense his true disdain for Anne Hash. Yeah, Hash. Hash. I'm sorry. Because right. this is when she was dating Ellen, right? Just to be famous. I think so. And everyone was like, "Aren't you only doing that to be famous?" And it was like, "Yes, she is." And, yeah, you could just tell that he's like, I can't believe I have to make this movie with this person. And I love that. They beat lava with, like, freeway. (laughs) Concrete. Concrete, like, obstructions. Yes. Whatever those are called, barriers. They just route it. Yeah. Down a street. Yeah, somehow it's able to, win. I don't know how they win against the volcano. It's like they... It's it's tearing up buildings and destroying all the property, but they're like, use the concrete median. Yay. <laughs> and you get the moment off of the subway. That's what I was going to say. Yeah, you get, oh, that's, and I believe that's. um That's what's his name from Fargo. He was in Zodiac. He's yeah. awesome. He plays Norman Fargo. Yeah, you get to see him, uh, that guy as a, as a city worker or a, a subway driver jump off of a 
subway car into lava and like walk through it. Yeah, to die. save his friends. It's crazy. It's it's just like Aunt May or whatever in Dante's Peak. But yeah, he's better. just like screaming and carrying. Yeah, this man. he's like, I'm doing it, and he like takes steps. It's like what? You wouldn't have a foot. If you stepped in lava that was deep enough, would you just would you just m- melt into it? I think so. Gmail us. <laughs> Gmail us. Taking a seat at Wendell Murray's desk, Dorothy politely introduces herself, keeping a tone that lets everyone know she is not happy to be there. Stanley, however, goes the route of ripping off his toupee to reveal a bald head that matches the hair pattern of Mr. Murray. Without a formal greeting, Stan points to his chrome dome and simply says, Paisan, which is an informal greeting usually between Italians or Spaniards. This bizarre interaction has Mr. Murray confused and Dorothy worried about going to prison. In case it helps, she also points out that their divorce was a bitter one, her polite way of saying, I think he's a jerk too. Hoping to clear up the confusion, Stan repeats himself, explaining that he and Wendell are brothers from the same hairless mother, claiming that they are a minority who will only be heard when they stick together. Looking back at Wendell, who you could call bald, but you could also say he just has an extremely receded hairline, is offended by the idea someone would call him bald, making for a great start with their interview. Adding even more salt to the awkward wound, Stanley ignores Dorothy's plea for him to shut up and throws in the fact that he's a member of the anti-racist, anti-class movement of the Rainbow Coalition, in yet another attempt to connect with Wendell as he is a black man. Making it very clear that any personal feelings Wendell may have will have no effect on the outcome of their audit, he's better off cutting the crap. The day has passed. And without so much as a T9 calculator in sight, Wendell has manually gone through every receipt for every dollar the Spornak spent during the year in question. And when he's done, Wendell is impressed at the lengths Stan went to to not pay his taxes, which of course Stan takes as a compliment. When all is said and done, the two won't be going to jail, but they will each need to pay Uncle Sam $2,500 or in today's money about $6,000 each. Aunt Dorothy isn't fond of the idea. With the numbers crunched, they have a month to pay the fine. The only way the two can avoid jail, getting liens, and repossessions is to pay up. But since they don't have it, Stan is certain they'll be going to jail. Going back to her original curse on Stan, Dorothy agrees that he will be going to jail, and once there, she would like to know where he and Bubba register for wedding gifts. With a hit to Stan's shoulder and a dramatic flowing of her duster, Dorothy is out of there. Back at home, a pink robe wearing Rose is studying for her upcoming Spanish test, something she's pretty sure Blanche, who just came home in her shockingly blue skirt and blouse, should also be doing. But Blanche has good reason to not be worried about studying. She promised the teacher that she would sleep with him if he provided the answer key, something I feel is a little bit out of character after Blanche's episode with her sexually harassing professor. Now that Blanche has exercised her skill of safe teasing, playing off the safe sex talk of the day due to AIDS and other STIs, she's certain Rose will join her in cheating. But on the contrary, Rose was once caught cheating. Her competitive nature got the best of her when she fed her prized lamb BB pellets to have him weigh more. Sadly, her lamb pooped out the pellets, causing a scandal throughout St. Olaf. Leaving us wondering, yet again, what time it is, Dorothy has come in to join the girls in her white nightgown. She can't sleep. Seeing as Blanche just got home from a non-sexual date, it really shouldn't be later than, like, 11? Midnight? Well, it is Miami, so maybe it is 2 a.m. and this all just works out. When Blanche guesses that Dorothy's inability to sleep is related to her money issues, she corrects her. My taxes? Looming prison time? Oh, no. I'm just really worried if Michael Jackson will be able to purchase the skeleton of Joseph Merrick, a.k.a. the Elephant Man. 
It was a valid concern as Michael was very interested in purchasing the remains, offering a million dollars, which was 1987 money and would have been about 2.5 million today. Luckily, the London hospital where Joseph died refused to sell them. Was there a music video of Michael Jackson's where he where he danced with the elephant man's bones? What is that? Oh my god, yep, and it's it's the claymation, it's very um yeah. a sledgehammer, you know. Oh, Peter Gabriel. Peter Gabriel, it's yeah. very I didn't realize that that's what that was. So apparently Michael would go to the bones, he would go visit the remains and like sit and talk with them. Because I you that sounds like, oh my god, that's crazy, but it kind of makes sense as Elephant Man was hounded and treated as this freak show and no one like you you could see why he would feel a, re, a connection to him. Michael Jackson was putting up red flags. Yeah. Uh, as many as you wanted to look at. Yeah. But moment to moment. That's the key. As many as you wanted to look at. Ooh. Nobody wanted to look at him because he made good music. This is all very surprising to Rose. She would be more concerned about the whole money situation than what Michael was doing with his money says the lady who just weeks ago was spending time worrying more about Bubbles the Chimp. (laughs) Joining the insomniac party is Sophia in her yellow robe. In response to Sophia asking if anyone in the house ever slept, Dorothy goes even further. Sleep? I can't focus. I can't work. I can't eat. The only thing on her mind is the money. If Sophia had had it, she would give it to her daughter, or at least that's what Dorothy assumes. Really, it's just that Sophia wishes she had that kind of money. Someone that does have it is Rose, who offers Dorothy her little bit of savings to help. Blanche can also dip into her Bahamas cruise fund and throw in a few hundred dollars. Moved by their generosity, Dorothy gives them thanks. Thanks that Blanche doesn't hear as she is already planning an at-home version of her vacation. She'll just listen to Harry Belafonte records and limbo under the clothesline. Knowing this is her responsibility, Dorothy can't take her friend's money. Blanche is delighted by the news. Her vacation is back on, baby. Dorothy will just have to find another way to pay the bill, like selling her stuff. No, Sophia, that doesn't mean she's considering becoming a sex worker. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Sophia is kind of right, though. It is hard to charge for something you haven't been able to give away for free. It's just a bad business plan. The selling Dorothy is talking about is her objects to a pawn shop. Since they can't help financially, the girls are happy to go with her to try to haggle the highest price from the broker. Coco. Hi. Have you ever dealt with any kind of pawn anything? Pawning is a, is a world I've been really fascinated with my whole life. I've always wanted to go into a pawn shop, not the one in Pulp Fiction. But I've never gone in. I you, don't know how it you've works. You've never even been in a pawn shop. I've never gone in because I don't know how it works. I need someone. It's like the first time I went to a dispensary. I need someone oh, to take me. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I went. we would go in Vegas because it was like just another place you would shop because it's like a secondhand store. So we'd go thrifting and you'd stop at like some of the nice pawn shops. But yeah, I do not fully understand. It's like you'll give me money to loan you my thing or I can just sell it outright. So if you're not pawning something and you just go in there, you're just shopping. Yeah. Well, that I, I can handle that. I, yeah. didn't know, I didn't know what other trans, sort of transaction or. Yeah, I think that's it. You can just go in and be, go shopping for the stuff people have pawned. That's cool. Yeah. I see a lot of chainsaws and windows. <laughs> a lot of instruments hanging so out. So <laughs> many. Shattered dreams, baby. <laughs> the entire situation has Dorothy so upset. Here she was in her golden years, a time when her scrimping and saving should be paying off by letting her live a financially secure life. But here she is, making a mental list of things she'd be willing to part with. This starts a conversation that is still happening today. People in their 60s who should be approaching retirement but don't have the money to do so. Rose certainly didn't expect to be single and working in her 50s or 60s. Blanche never thought she'd be a woman in her 50s. I'm sorry, in her 39s. Stepping in to provide life advice, Sophia shares the three most important lessons she knows. One, keep your friends close. 
Two, nothing is secure. Three, don't see the Warren Beatty, Dustin Hoffman, classically bad film, Ishtar. Three, two, three, four, four, two, three, and... These men are pawns. I put the price of 20,000 dirham on their heads. Next, they will be hailed as the two messenger of God. They were just a couple of songwriters who came to Ishtar to break into show business. Easy boy, easy boy. Easy boy. Easy boy. Easy boy. Well, yeah, he is, but, but he's in perfect condition. So how do they wind up on everyone's hit list? Your life is in danger. Behave normally. We have a gun pointed at your back. No, don't put your hands up, you idiot. My little darling. My little darling. I can't believe these men may control the fate of the Middle East. This is unbelievable. Ishtar? Isht pretty funny. You give it a pretty funny? You're like the only person I know that's seen it. Well, you can also ask my father because he's seen it. I believe he enjoyed it quite a lot as well. But it's not a good movie. It's not a good movie. It's just funny. Does that make sense? Is that okay? Yeah. They're funny in it because they're kind of playing opposites of their personas in life. Right. Uh, Dustin Hoffman and Warren Beatty. And they're like trying to be singer-songwriters, like live performers in clubs and stuff. I don't quite understand it. <laughs> but their disillusionment, disillusionment is very funny. And there's a funny clip that I watched yesterday recording clips for this. Uh, where they, where they're being hounded by vultures. This is the oasis. The, Does this look like an oasis here? Yeah, look at the birds. Are those vultures? Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I'm intrigued now because I honestly only ever heard Ishtar's bad, and saw the cover art. I had never even seen like a millisecond of it until I pulled it up for this. And I'm like, wait, it's like a screwball comedy. I thought it was like a very serious, very long, like desert journey. And I thought it was just so slow and boring that that was why everyone hated it. No, it's because it's bad. Yeah. The next day, the ladies have arrived at what appears to be the busiest pawn shop in Miami. Blanche reminding them of the plan. Know what you want, stick to your price, and undo a button to show more cleavage. When Dorothy points out that the price won't matter based on her shirt buttons, Blanche agrees. Just she and Rose will be doing the cleavage work on this one. Approaching the counter, Mr. Escobar greets the ladies in Spanish, prompting Rose to practice what she's learned in class, followed by her mixing up some words and basically telling the guy that she's there to rob him of his money. Backing up, Mr. Escobar begs her to just take the money and leave him alone. She apologizes and they get back to their reason for the visit. Playing Mr. Escobar is Tony Perez, who has been acting since the 1960s. Tony made his acting debut on General Hospital and is still acting today. He's appeared in Once Upon a Time, Sons of Anarchy, Crossing Jordan, 24, Murder One, Jag, ER, MacGyver, Hill Street Blues, an old favorite, Helltown, Helltown. and of course, La La. Looking over the box of trinkets, Mr. Escobar offers 100 bucks for everything. Offended by the low price, Blanche grabs a pitcher from the box and starts a very dramatic telling of the history of said beverage holder. It came across the ocean with Dorothy's great-great-grandmother. This pitcher represents freedom, liberty, and it was made in Taiwan, totally negating the entire malarkey story she just told. According to Mr. Escobar, that story was worth more than the items. The only thing Dorothy came in with that could get any money which was $800, would be the ring she was wearing, the one that Stanley had given her. And it's one of the only decent things he ever gave to her, so she can't just bring herself to part with it. As her sentimentality grows, so does the offer, getting as high as $1,200, but she just can't. After 38 years, she earned that ring. As a friendly reminder to be realistic about the situation she was in, Blanche pulls Dorothy aside. Yeah, you had 38 years of marriage, at the end of which he dumped you for a flight attendant younger than any of your children. It's a deal. The ring is sold and Dorothy is halfway to the funds needed.
It's Thursday night, and in head-to-toe yellow, Blanche, filing her nails, is on the couch with Rose in Pepto-Pink down to her kids. They're supposed to be at class, but it turns out they both dropped out. It's just too hard for a Norwegian to learn Spanish, hence no herring tacos. It also takes years to be considered fluent in a language, so I'm pretty sure that promotion would have passed her by way before she was truly bilingual. For Blanche, the class was a bust as her purpose was to meet men, but there was only one cute guy in the class, and he was in love with some guy named Kenny. It's been a month and Stan is there to get the check from Dorothy for her half of the payment. Which, I'm sorry, I'm still upset about this. How was that her responsibility? I realize that they were married at the time, but if Stan had done all the paperwork and then he bought the car and he did the work incorrectly in an attempt to break the law to avoid paying the taxes, well, I would not be pawning my things to pay that bill. I'd be a witness for the prosecution. When the dropouts say hello to Stan, Rose is curious why he isn't wearing one of his new toupees. Damn, he has to start remembering to take his hair off before he opens his sunroof. Stan is apologetic for everything and even has a gift for Dorothy. He called earlier and spoke to Sophia. She, probably in a very intense tone, informed him that Dorothy had pawned her ring to pay the fine. So to prove how much he appreciates her, or to just keep her on the hook for the next crisis, Stan went to the shop and bought it back. Enjoying the unusually sweet side of Stan, Dorothy starts to get emotional. Luckily, she's stopped by her dear friend who reminds her she's an ugly crier and she'll end up with a swollen nose the size of old Hollywood star Carl Malden. Even if you haven't seen a movie of his, you've seen him portrayed in Looney Tunes cartoons. Seeing a flaw in Stan's story, Rose inquires as to how Stan, who didn't have the money for taxes, had the money to buy the ring. Well, if you can believe it, he did the right thing and sold the Corvette. He's sad about it, but he wanted to make things right with Dorothy. He's turned into his worst nightmare, a bald, middle-aged man in a Toyota. But it's still better than losing Dorothy. Seeing as the former couple might need some time alone, Blanche scoops up Rose to take her to Wally's to go meet some guys. Hoping they'll take the route that uses Biscayne Boulevard, Stan requests they try to find his hair, surely indiscernible from roadkill at this point. Once again, the Zbornaks work together to solve a problem. They're always a strong team, somehow. As Stan goes on about the good old times as they hug, he then offers to take it way old school by hitting the sheets, you know, since he's there and all. Continuing her embrace, Dorothy simply hugs Stan tighter and tighter until he gets the message. And that message is pain. The lesson in today's episode, most importantly, is to pay your taxes. Second most important, don't be moved by the price tag of a gift. The cost of something doesn't equate to the love or respect they have for you. Sure, Stan spent a hefty sum on Dorothy's ring, but he followed it up by purchasing a car behind her back. Don't be blinded by the twinkle of diamonds. They might be for love, but they could also just be a distraction. As always, thank you for listening and thank you for being a friend. Be sure to join us next week when we head to therapy in Three on a Couch. (laughs) This is some of our best work. a not-at-all-uncommon issue for someone of her age. At age? When Blanche thinks Rose will have to date women to get her promotion, it doesn't... Oh. Watching a few whoopsies... Oop. Nope. My own whoopsie. Whoopsie. Coming out from her room in a light blue... Blue blout. We heard it. Wow. That's different when it's your wife and you're happily married at 24. Hmm, this is going to last forever. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think my chair queefed. Ah! Chweef. <laughs> Chweef. <laughs> Roll that beautiful Vince Vega footage. <laughs>
finally, it's their turn. (laughs) Oh, hell yeah, we get to talk about Volcano. Finally, it's their turn. Oh my gosh, my tongue. You sounded like Medea. (laughs) (laughs) A turn. Stanley, however, goes the route of ripping off his toupee to reveal a bald bald head. Uh, Oops, surprise. uh, Oh. I'm going to put a, an effect of a bunch say, of like BBs falling ding, on ding, the ground. Ding, ding, ding. I was just <laughs> hearing that. I think there were elephants in like. Mm-mm. Elephant man. Oh, wait. <laughs> Skeleton. Have you ever dealt with any kind of pawn anything? <clears throat> Sorry. <clears throat> <clears throat> yeah, I've been pawned. I've been pawned. <laughs> I'm sorry for needing. Laugh at me. <laughs> well, I, thought, I was like, that's funny. <laughs> I'll get you a little Shriner's monkey. Mm, you are my Shriner's monkey. Oh, thank you. Patronize me, man. <laughs> F- toy monkeys. <laughs> Bullshit. <laughs> oh, my mic's on. <laughs> How dare you. <laughs> she apologized. Ow, I bit my tongue. Yeah, you had 38 years of marriage. Years of marriage. Okay, good. You're welcome. Oh, you didn't say that. <laughs> also, diamonds have no intrinsic value. That's Stop right. Stop buying them. That's right. Or buy some lab-grown ones. That's, That's right. That's pretty cool. That's right. Stupid. Or raw ones, my favorite. Salt and pepper diamonds. Other jewels. A ruby. Go to a pawn shop and get a an old diamond. Or some old costume jewelry. Yes. Always Be My Sisters is written, hosted, and created by Alicia Holland. Produced and edited by Josh McCullough. Always Be My Sisters is a Cascade Media production. You'll always be my sister.